welcome. Uh, this is my name is Xenophon Dimitris. I'm a professor of biomedical informatics and data science here at Yale. This is one of our supplementary interviews for a new certificate program in medical software and medical AI. Our guest today is Megan Graham, who is an experienced quality regulatory consultant in the medical device industry. She served on a number of standards committees and she has a lot of experience in this field. So we're looking for having a conversation about quality systems and risk management and whatever else we get to. So Megan, welcome. Tell us a little bit about you and how you got here. Thank you for having me. I'm very glad to be here. Um, I am a software engineer first. That's my background. I've spent over 25 years uh, creating new products in the medical device industry. Um, I consult with uh, digital health innovators to define their quality uh, frameworks and regulatory strategies so they can get their ideas into the hands of the patients and the clinicians that need them. Okay, so let's get started slowly here. So the first question I want to ask you is just tell us a little bit about the regulatory landscape for software and, you know, its history over the past say 20, 25 years. And for those who are new to this, maybe 25 years, there was barely software out there. So how, how far have we come? Software has come a long way in the medical device industry. Uh, software has been a part of medical devices as long as there have been medical devices. Um, so, software can solve problems in healthcare that hardware alone can't solve. So there are many opportunities uh, for software. But software creates challenges for regulatory frameworks. It can change easily. You can't hold it and touch it like you can a piece of hardware. So making sure that the software is safe and effective is really uh, why we have programs like this and why we look at software engineering practices to make sure that the products uh, are going to work the way they need to work uh, for patients and clinicians. Um, several years ago, uh, the regulators realized they needed to uh, find new ways to regulate software so that they could create safe and effective products without stifling innovation. So they actually collaborated across the globe, uh, creating the Global Harmonization Task Force, which later became the IMDRF. Um, and have started to uh, create risk-based regulatory paths, rules, controls uh, that will allow the various types of software to have the right amount of rigor uh, for the problems that it's trying to solve. Before we go on, let me ask you to just touch on two words that you used in there. So just explain for people who are new to this, what do we mean by controls? Great question. When we say controls in the regulatory world, that really means um, processes uh, or rigor. So if you're developing software that is going to be in an implantable pacemaker, <clears throat> you're probably going to use a lot more rigor, more rigorous methods, design methods, uh, testing methods, than you might need if you have uh, a wellness application that's going to collect data that the patient enters themselves for how much, how many steps they take, what they weigh for that day. So depending on the level of um, uh, risk that the device has will depend on the level of rigor that you need to put into your software uh, lifecycle. 
And when people say this was designed under design controls, I assume that means that those processes were in place, correct? Exactly. Not only were those processes in place and you followed them, but you have evidence that you followed them. Because in the world of regulatory, if you don't have evidence, a document, a record, something, uh, you probably you can't demonstrate that you actually followed the process. So you probably didn't do it well, according the, to regulators. Yeah. The other term you mentioned, I think you explained it, but I want to just highlight it for students here. Use the word risk-based. Mm. What do you mean by risk-based? Or what is your definition here? What should we do now? When we think of risk from a medical device perspective, we think about the likelihood that a failure in that particular um, software or that portion of the software, that feature will harm a patient, harm a clinician. And that could be um, something where the software delivers a therapy, for example, a defibrillator that shocks or doesn't shock when it's supposed to. Um, or it could be uh, something where the, the privacy of the patient's data is not protected. So when I started in this business, I I told this Coursera class a few years ago, 5% of the class was AI and 95% were not AI. We are in the middle of this AI revolution. So the thing about the regulatory strategies of companies and the regulations, what are we, how is this changing? Let's call it in this era of AI. What are you seeing there? What we're seeing in the medical device industry, and we have been seeing it, and it's become even more so, is opportunities to embed, integrate AI modules, some kind of AI functionality, artificial intelligence or machine learning functionality uh, into just about every part of the healthcare continuum. So uh, we are seeing it increasingly in automation of clinical workflows, uh, support for clinical decision-making, it's been in imaging, it's been in anything, any place where there's data that can be analyzed and acted upon. We're seeing uh, organizations and innovators come forward with different solutions in those spaces. And how is that changing the regulatory structure? Are there new rules or are we still under the old rules? I'm sure we're under a mismatch of rules actually, but... Well, regula regulators around the world are increasingly adding um, to their regulatory frameworks. So depending on the country, you're starting to see uh, new regulations or guidance uh, where it's whether it's laws, it's regulations, it's guidance, new standards, some level of uh, of rules around or guidance around how we actually develop that software, train the modules, um, the the train the models that are being implemented, or monitoring the software once it's deployed to the clinical workflow. And we're seeing you know new actors enter the space here whether it's your Googles of the world who are doing breast cancer detection, which was unthinkable to us 10 years ago that somebody outside the medical space would be getting into our work, or even places like where I work, academic hospitals. How is that changing the field? What are they doing well? What are they doing badly? What are, you, what are your thoughts there? It's a very exciting time because uh, not only are the traditional uh, medical device manufacturers um, 
and uh, adding on to their uh, platforms and their solutions, but you have newer players entering the space, space such as the Googles or the Apples of the world. And then you have large academic medical institutions that are also looking at what kind of clinical healthcare software are they delivering and what kind of rules do they want to put in place to make sure that what they're developing is also safe and effective. And that may or may not be uh, what a regulator tells them to do. Uh, the software that's being created may or may not be regulated. Uh, it might be on some level of regulatory spectrum where uh, it, it uh, doesn't need to go to a regulator like the FDA first, but those rules in terms of what makes safe and effective software still apply. And so what we're seeing is an explosion of uh, so many people being involved, thinking about how can we do this better? What do we need? What rules do we need to put in place? What controls do we need to put in place? Uh, and then it's become an entire, just a collaboration across, across the globe. So if I look at the evolution of the space and I think about AI in a little bit, you know, maybe the original rules, device all or nothing, right? There's the box, there's hardware, the software, this is your device, that's your line, you regulate everything inside of it. Then we start thinking about software as a medical device and the regulator says, well, you know, the PC you're running on or the phone, we don't care about that. We're just gonna focus on the software. We're beginning to see things like, I don't know, the last three or four years maybe, medical device functions even defined, right? Not the whole device not the whole software is a device, a piece of it is a device. So how is that line drawn and how does one, I mean, I don't want to go to too many details, but how would you advise people to managing a piece of software that's, you know, part regulated, part not regulated? How do those lines get drawn almost? Well, what's really exciting to me is that um, in order to um, think about how do we get from point A to point B? How do we think about this? We have to go back to software engineering first principles. So really thinking about your software in terms of its features, its different functions that it performs. Uh, how, what is your software architecture? Do you have a modular architecture where some of those modules might be regulated and some of those modules may not be regulated. Your environment, your test environment or your uh, operating environment may not be uh, regulated anymore. Uh, and it really does depend on what does your software do. So when you think about uh, how do you deal with all of the different things that your software can do, I really like to go back to software architecture what and, and software requirements. What is your software trying to do? What are all the different functions? Uh, and how is it architected so that we can isolate the riskier portions of the software from the less risky portions of the software? And that's generally good software engineering in the first place, which works very, very well uh, so that regardless of whether your software is regulated, where it fits on that spectrum, you're still designing a safe and effective product that can be extended over time as you add additional features or as regulatory requirements change over time. Right, because what we have as unregulated now may be regulated tomorrow and you wake up. Exactly, or you've created a, a first version of your software and you wanna add a feature 
or you want to use it in a different, uh, for a different patient or a different scenario, all of a sudden the software that wasn't regulated is now regulated. So all of those rules apply. So thinking about your quality and your regulatory strategy from the very beginning as a portion, as a part of your, an inherent part of your system design, your software design, whether it's designing for security or designing for the regulatory landscape, um, it really is going to make your software much more extensible so that uh, you're not having to completely redo the software just to fit a new feature. You're basically designing that that capability in. You're making it medical device enabled, if you will, so that um, just like you're making it, you're designing for quality or you're de designing for security so that your customers that use this software are gonna be happy with the quality of it. And you're gonna be happy with your, you know, having to do it one time. Mm -hmm. Use the word quality there. So let's jump to the next thing that on our list, which is quality management systems. And this is the biggest shock to anybody entering the medical device industry from a regular software engineering environment, the fact that there's all these rules in place and the rules are mandatory. This is the one thing that actually the FDA mandates, right? The quality management system. So tell us a little bit about what is a QMS and how do people begin the process of setting it up? Like if you're a new company, new player in the space, you know, imagine a student here who's thinking about doing a startup in this space. <laughs> what are the three things they should know before they get started and it's too late? First, that's exciting that you know you're you've got a great idea and you want to make sure that uh, there's a market for your idea. the The second thing to think about very quickly is how are you going to build your business and your entire operating everything you do. What are your business processes that you need to have in place? In addition to what are the features you need to have in place? Um, because not only is the software itself regulated, but the way you run your business as a software uh, medical device manufacturer, assuming that you are regulated, that also matters. And there are some very uh, specific requirements for that. Uh, those are defined in, in the United States. Those are in the Code of Federal Regulations, known as 21 uh, CFR Part 820. You'll hear that quite a bit. But essentially, it defines... Who are your management? What's your organizational structure? And what are the processes that you have uh, and procedures that you have to make sure that you're designing safe and effective products for the U.S. market? So what are the couple of things that you would do first? So when people come talk to you, like, because often for a large company, these things run into hundreds of pages and take folders, but obviously you don't start with thousands of pages. You start with Small I always, exactly. I always like to remember that even the big companies started somewhere, right? And so just like you're designing your rigor, the rigor of your process is based on how uh, complex or safety critical your product is, uh, your the design of your quality management system should also match the size and complexity of your organization. So for example, if you're just starting out and there's maybe three people and you're sitting in a coffee shop somewhere because you don't have a facility yet, um, there's a way to design 
the very basics of the quality management system. It always starts with things like who is your management? Um, what kinds of products do you do? What processes do you do or don't you do? Uh, and the other aspect of a quality management system is that it evolves over time. So once you set that in place, it's something that has to be managed and evolve over time as things change. So you don't have to do everything at, at first. The first thing I always do is I start with the quality manual. What is it we do? Who are we? And what's our plan? And so you start from there and you immediately start making tracks in the regulated space because the more you do with your product before you have that in place, the harder it is to demonstrate that you've met all of the requirements uh, to the regulator. So when you start with the end in mind, I'm going to eventually submit this document. You're going to have to sign something that says you followed all those rules. So it's best to think about that strategically as part of developing your business. Yeah, I mean, what I tell students, there's a similar process when you deal with statisticians. Don't talk to them at the end. They are really unhappy. Talk to them before you start. And exactly. they tell you what needs to happen at each stage of the process. And this is another one of those. Exactly. And nobody likes to come to you after you've already created this product, you've spent all this money, and then you're like, okay, I'm ready to submit. The next question anyone is going to ask you is, where's your quality management system? And uh, that's not the best time to be thinking about that. So it really does help you with your business strategy to think about that from the beginning. So a related area from my notes here we talked before is risk management, which is part and parcel of the entire process of medical software. So just tell us a little bit about risk management and again, some of the highlights in your mind of what people should know. So risk management is a very uh, rigorous process. Um, we talk about risk management gen generally in terms of what are the risks and we want to manage risks. We talk about that in terms of our business, in terms of product. But when we think about a medical device risk management process, there's actually a standard uh, ISO uh, 14971 that defines the specific steps that you need to take. Um, all the way down to, you mentioned statistics, all the way down to how are you calculating probabilities for the different risks? How are you identifying risks? What risks are you identifying? And the goal of that process is to identify different ways in which a hazard can occur uh, with respect to your product as it's being used or as it might be potentially misused. Uh, and that includes things, you know, you know, anything that can harm software can also harm if you're making a decision that um, is an erroneous decision, right? If you have an AI or a machine learning model that is making a wrong decision, what, what are the impacts of a failure? Uh, when you think about cybersecurity or data privacy, all of that is part of an overall risk management program. And uh, more recently with AIML, there's even a new standard that applies 14971 to AIML, and that's 34971. So it just has a list of potential things to, to think about when you're, when you're designing your, your uh, software. And when people come to this industry new and you need to train them, what is the shift mindset-wise with respect to risk management? They've never thought about it. I tell people that engineers, 
the room for engineers that you walk into the room and you ask what can go wrong here and what can I do about it, which is pretty good summary of risk management actually, but how do you get people thinking in those terms? First talk to them. So I always like to think about when you're designing a product, you need to have two opposing ways of thinking about that product. One is how does it need to work, right? What does it need to do? That's that's almost sometimes called the happy path or the positive path. But you also need to think about the ways in which it can break. And you need to um, understand that in a realistic sense, so not necessarily uh, unrealistic uh, risk scenarios, but you need, really need to think about your software or your product in a very different way. How can it break? How can I make sure that it can fail safely if it's going to fail? What are the ways, what are the hazards in that scenario, in that clinical workflow that my software or my product might uh, run into that could cause it to not perform properly? So it's it's just as important to think about how uh, your product can break as it is about how can it work. Mm -hmm. One of the challenges I see around me here and at the academic hospitals over the last 15 years is that we write a lot of code inside hospitals, not me personally in this particular domain, thankfully, but a lot of my colleagues, especially clinicians, do develop a lot of AI right now and trying to integrate into clinical practice. Obviously, that's not regulated to the same level. We're not selling anything. You know, the EU has an explicit provided exemption in the US. It's a slightly different story. What's your advice to them as they look at the regulatory process? Like, what do you think are the most salient features of it that they could adopt to do things better as they think about? Obviously, they're not going to have the full process. We're not a company. We don't have the resources. But if you had two or three things that you think are the most important, what would you advise them to do? If I were to start with just your basic uh, software engineering process, and even if you're developing AIML, that is a type of, you need to apply software engineering practices as well. Um, if you had nothing else, I would start with configuration management. So what is the version <laughs> and version control? What is the version of the software that you're developing and what are you actually putting into practice? I would be really, really crisp about what is it that you are intending it to do? So how do you know it's working? Similarly, how do you know it's failing? What would what are some scenarios you would not want to happen? So thinking about that in terms of uh, just developing that, that software, um, writing it down is always a good idea as well uh, so that you have some record uh, that you can look at and, and review and, and think about in terms of, um, you know, is, is it performing the way I expect? Do I know what it needs to do? And then the other thing I would do is I would monitor it. So as you get through your rigorous process to actually put it into the clinic, the clinical workflow, I would make sure you have taken steps um, to, uh, not let that software, should it fail, uh, harm anyone. So I would make sure that you're watching it. Is it actually performing as uh, we expected it to? And if you put those three pieces in place, in general, um, depending on the type of software that you're developing and what specifically it's doing and what the rules are in your particular hospital, um, 
but you should be in in fairly good shape uh, to to have quality software along the way. So those are the three things I would I would start with. Thank you. So Megan, we've gone for a while. I don't want to keep you here. So is there anything else that you feel we should talk about? Is there something you meant to say that didn't quite get to? I think the the one thing I want uh, everyone in your your course to remember is that the rules of AI are changing all the time. Uh, software engineering first principles really matter. AI ML first principles really matter. Um, but it's really exciting to forge ahead and uh, find ways to to develop solutions that can help patients, uh, but also just make sure that um, they are the solutions are safe and effective. Okay, thank you for joining us. Thank you.